Hello and welcome to the Björkness podcast. I'm Stephen Alton here with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Good day. And we work for the Björkness Centre for Climate Research. Today we'll be discussing sea ice modelling, a notoriously challenging topic of growing social and economic concern. Melting ice and its global consequences is one of the grand challenges of the World Climate Research Programme. But why is it so difficult to model and what is the cutting edge of research in tackling this problem? We're joined today by Einar Olsen, a researcher at the Nansen Centre here in sunny, sunny Bergen, and a member of the team developing the next generation of sea ice model. Einar, welcome. Thank you. So let's get started. Why model sea ice? <coughs> well, why model sea ice in general or me personally? <laughs> let's start with in general. In general. Well, we could, uh, we could start with uh, the most general, maybe its importance in the, in the climate system. So sea ice, sea ice is actually is an excellent insulator. So it means whenever you form ice on top of the ocean, heat, it insulates the ocean from the atmosphere. So when you have ice on top of the ocean, the atmosphere can get really, really cold, even though that the ice, the ocean underneath is relatively warm. So you have ocean at about minus two or thereabouts. But put ice on top, even if it's not that much, half a meter or a little bit more maybe, and then the air temperature can drop down to minus 40 quite easily. Over open water, this will not happen. It also has an effect on the albedo. Yes, that's true. And that's uh, more in, the, in summer, obviously. So albedo is the, is the fraction of reflected light, essentially. So when the sun shines on the surface of the Earth, it warms up the surface. But some fraction of the, of the incoming solar radiation is then reflected back. In case of sea ice, and, and even more so in the case of snow, they are white, as we know, and they reflect a lot of the light back. So when you have ice on top of the ocean, then the incoming solar radiation will not reach the ocean to warm it up, but almost all of it will be reflected back into space. This is obviously very important for the climate system and understanding the sort of heat balance of the Earth. Um, but sea ice now is very much becoming important in terms of economic and social developments, uh, shipping in the Arctic, for example. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, CS has, has always been very important uh, economically, we could say, for the indigenous people living near the ice. There's, uh, there's always been a lot of activity on the ice for these people, and its disappearance completely changes their lifestyle, obviously. Um, for more what we think of sort of industrialized economic activity, so the shipping and mining that will open up as the ice retreats, then this is obviously a major, uh, should we say, topic for sort of applied research. So you want to know where you can sail relatively safely through the ice, where there will be ice hazards, where there's risk of your ship getting stuck and where you can sort of think you can plow your way through anyway. And as it turns out, the ice is actually growing thinner much more quickly than we anticipated first. So this is becoming a much more interesting challenge for people that want to dis to exploit the resources in the in the Arctic. When you actually model sea ice, 
what sort of properties do you model? What are you? What is the model trying to? What are you trying to get your model to tell you? Where sea ice is, the thickness, the concentration. What? Yes. Yes. So the <clears throat> so the main variables in the model we should say are thickness and concentration, like you say. So the model should produce a map, say of the Arctic, showing where there is ice. So you can you basically have a scale from zero to a hundred percent, saying that in one particular area there is it's completely ice covered, so it's hundred percent ice cover, or there's a broken up ice cover, so it's something like eighty percent or forty percent, and then you can get into the so called marginal ice zone where you travel where you move from the the unbroken thick ice or unbroken ice of 100% and into the open ocean with this 0% ice. So for like the shipping and such, you need to know where the ice edge is and and a bit how how quickly it changes from the 0% over open water into 100% in the thick ice. So how this marginal ice zone, how wide it is. So that's one important variable. And the other one is the ice thickness. So you want to also have a map of how thick the ice is over the Arctic. Um, this is extremely important for shipping because uh, the ships can't just plow through any any old ice. Most most of them are well; they're all classified. So it depends on the ice. The class of the the ice class of the ship tells you how thick ice it can go through. And so if you know that the the ice in a certain area is going to be very thin, then you can drive through with a with a boat of a certain class. But if it's thicker, then you have to get a, a bigger vessel, essentially. Yeah. This is what you're getting out of the model, these maps of concentration and thickness. Mm -hmm. um, what do you need to predict these? What does the model take in? Um, temperatures, winds? So it depends a bit on on what maybe more in more detail what you want for your model or what uh, what circumstances you're running your model in so in the case of uh, of a forecast like we are working on producing a sea ice forecast in the, in those cases what we have as an input is the weather forecast <clears throat> and ocean state forecast so the weather forecast that means winds that means uh, temperature that means precipitation most importantly and the ocean forecast means the the temperature of the ocean and the ocean currents. And then we use the winds to move, tell the ice how it should move, and the ocean currents also move the ice. And the temperature tells you if it's freezing or melting, essentially. So, in but in a uh, in a climate model setup, all of these models are talking to each other continuously, so they are fully coupled. So the the model, the atmospheric model changes the way the ice behaves, which changes the way the ocean behaves. And then there's a full feedback back and forth of all these things. Is there larger or more communication between the ocean and the atmosphere in the ice regions? So where there's no ice, what you, you have the, the wind blowing on top of the ocean and moving the ocean, stirring the ocean directly. If there is ice, the wind essentially has to move the ice first. And if it's very compact, then it means the ice is going to move very little. So it works as a damper on the on the momentum transfer from atmosphere to the ocean, as long as it's compact and solid.
It also uh, acts to some extent on the heat fluxes between them. Of course, if you looked at middle of the North Atlantic, the sea surface temperature and the near surface air temperature are very, very similar. They're, they're very closely related to one another. Um, but the decoupling effect of ice separating the ocean and the atmosphere means that where you have ice, your ocean atmosphere can have very different temperatures. So this makes your, what you said, of marginal ice zone, this region at the edge of the ice, really important because there you could have a relatively warm ocean and suddenly it can meet the cold air coming off of the ice. So you can get very large temperature difference and hence very large fluxes. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, so this you could think about two, two situations. First, the marginal ice zone, like you mentioned, where you have... We can have a situation where over the ice you have extremely cold air, minus 20, 30 degrees, and over the ocean you have much, much milder conditions, even uh, yeah, near to zero. And what can happen is that when the wind starts blowing off the ice and onto the ocean, you have what is called a cold air outbreak. And this, has, this is a very dramatic atmospheric event. It can build up... Uh, so-called polar lows, which are very strong and very uh, very dangerous features, actually, in the atmosphere. So you can, because of this this sharp gradient between the atmosphere over the ice and the atmosphere over the ocean, you can build up a really interesting atmospheric uh, phenomenon. And we can also see, in, if you just think of the middle of the of the ice pack, high in the north, where the, where it's uh, completely covered with ice. You can still break the ice and form leads. So you have these very, very long, narrow leads, a few hundred meters wide, perhaps. But there, the cold atmosphere again meets the, the warm ocean. And this causes uh, huge amounts of evaporation from the ocean and produces what's commonly called this ice fog. So there's so much relatively warm water coming out of the, out of the ocean that you form fog over the ice. Now, we keep using the term ice, and I think for many of the listeners, they'll think of the big, flat, white um, photographs that you see. <laughs> yeah. uh, but ice is a little more complicated than that. There's actually many different types of ice, and also ice has a lot of strange properties like uh, deformation and ridging and so on. Mm-hmm. This has all got to complicate your models, so yes, this <laughs> so ice models are notoriously complicated, um, and we, I mean, quite honestly, we don't take all of these different types of ice into account. I've already mentioned the so-called marginal ice zone, but if we if we maybe go through the stages of ice formation, then you start with in the ocean because there's more or less always some wind blowing, there's always some mixing, there are always some waves. So what you do is you form tiny little ice crystals that get mixed into the ocean. And you get, slowly as these build up, it turns into sort of a slush. It's called grease ice. It's very much what it sounds like. It, the, the ocean starts to look a bit thicker, in a sense. It becomes thick with ice. And uh, if it's... So this is if it's quite wavy. If it's less wavy, then you get more of a sort of a sheen on top of the ocean, which is then called nihilus. But eventually, uh, waves and winds will break break this up usually, especially in the in the marginal ice zone. And what you end up is, with is uh, 
so-called pancake ice, which is also again exactly what it <laughs> what it sounds like. So it looks like little pieces of pancakes or, or blini. The Russians mm. call them blini, of course. And these start to glue together, and then they start to form more sort of plates of ice. And these plates of ice then start to grow also together, and you end up with a, a more sort of a continuous um, a continuous ice cover, like the one you described. Mm. This one, of course, however, is not static at all. Um, you have winds and ocean currents blowing and and applying stress on the on the ice, and then at some points the ice cover will break. You will have a you will form an, a lead in one one place and a ridge and another. So basically, you you break part of the co ice cover and start to squeeze it together and this this forms so-called pressure ridge which is a uh, again a very very usually a very long and elongated feature and there are some very nice very nice pictures of those you can find on google if you like uh, basically they look like someone take some a giant has taken the ice and pushed it together with a lot of uh, huge pieces of ice sort of crumbling up together. And these are actually enormous forces that uh, form, transform an ice cover of maybe two or even three meter thick ice into a pressure ridge which can go as deep as, as 20 meters into the ocean. So yeah, there are some pretty impressive, impressive. forces. Yeah. <laughs> When you look at, uh, I mean, you talk about these pressure ridges forming in the mm -hmm. big plates of ice. When you look at a satellite picture of the Arctic, for example, of Earth, and you see the ice just set over, you'd assume, okay, there's, there's variation around the edges that moves around. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually the case. All of the ice is kind of constantly in motion. I mean, yes. Nansen demonstrated this when he throws Fram into mm -hmm. the ice sheet, and it just progressed across the whole of the ice in the arctic is constantly in motion and flowing yep. uh, your model can take all of this into account and all of these changes as it goes <laughs> all of it <laughs> well <laughs> is trying to ultimately yes yes is trying to ultimately so i should uh, so yes we've known for a very long time now that the ice is in constant motion indeed um, we these these big features. The one that Nansen discovered, which is the so-called transpolar drift, which basically is pulling ice from the Siberian coast and pushing it out through the through the Fram Strait. And then we also have a, a large feature called the the Beaufort the Beaufort Gyre. So it's sort of a a circular feature in the Beaufort Sea, so north of Canada and Alaska. And these two are the sort of large scale features that we've known about for for a very long time. Um, it, when we start talking about our model, the interesting bit is really, it, it really all starts when we get better observational data of the, of the ice cover. So before the, the satellite era, or at the, in the early satellite era, I should say, we know or discover these large scale features and quite, people were quite happy to, to model the ice as so sort of a, a soft and almost a viscous fluid-like thing, which flows from the, like I said, from the uh, from the Siberian coast through Fram Strait and around and around it goes in the Beaufort Sea. But then in the sort of 
in the late 90s, we get much better observations of how the ice is moving actually, much more detailed, much higher resolution, both in time and space. And we see that it's really not a, a smooth, nice and continuous thing. It's very discontinuous, it's very discrete. So you have these plates that are being pushed around and you have these, um, these large, what it's been called linear kinematic features, which are large lines of, uh, large lines of deformation where the ice is breaking up, either forming ridges like we discussed or leads. And these are not just some small isolated things, but they're long straight lines going hundreds and hundreds of kilometers across the, the Arctic. And when you watch these, when you watch videos of, uh, of these observations, you can see these cracks or features forming one day and disappearing the next, maybe reforming, moving a little bit and disappearing. It's an extremely, extremely um, active system and extremely, I should say, heterogeneous because you have very, very high uh, displacement or deformation rates. So areas where the ice is moving a lot, right next to areas where the ice is not moving at all. So it's really it's plates of ice drifting against each other. And it's really possible to predict this? Well, yes. Yes, it is actually. Uh, what is really possible is to statistically, at least, to get the right statistics. Because if you want to predict exactly the state where the, where the leads are on this particular moment, then you need to have perfect initial conditions, essentially. You need to start your model with the right ice cover condition. Now we're working on that, actually. But this is something you do more for a forecast than for climate models. Well, yes. So for the, for the forecast, Mm. What we do is we look at satellite images. We try to gather from those where the ice, where the the leads and the the weakness in ice is right now. Put this into the model, and then we run the model, and it will tell us how things will evolve. In the climate context, it's more a question of of getting the right statistic for these leads and information features because they we presume will also affect the heat flux between the ocean and atmosphere because it's opening it's opening the the ice cover and letting out heat and where the where you let out heat you have evaporation and where you have evaporation you also form uh, you also let salt into the ocean so you change properties both of the surface ocean and of the atmospheric boundary layer. And of course, this ultimately also affects the drift, the large scale drift. So your model, which is, I believe, called NEXSIM, yes. um, is it actually uh, coupled in a climate model now or can it be coupled? Or It's not coupled uh, to a climate model right now. It has. We have coupled it to an ocean model only mm-hmm. and we've started We've started running it. We haven't really started digging into the results yet. Yes. Mm. Um, we made so the so the basic idea with NextSim is to first get the physics right, and then worry about everything else later. <laughs> it's a good way to start. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a very interesting uh, interesting journey, but it also has left us with some 
numerical problems when it comes to coupling to climate models, which uh, now we have to decide, can we, can we use some better numerics or do we have to sacrifice some of the physics to get it in there? And that's really a, a big question for us right now. Yeah, the current stage then will be digging into the results of your model as coupled with an ocean model. Yes. And then in the future, you'll be looking to try coupling this to an atmospheric model mm -hmm. and you'll have all of it running together then. Yes, <laughs> that's, the, that's the big dream. That's the big dream. That's where you're headed. What are the weaknesses? What are the areas for improvement? What, is, what can the model not do? I mean, is this going to answer all sea ice modeling problems or god no <laughs> well that uh that would be much less interesting wouldn't it yes <laughs> <laughs> now we uh <clears throat> so there's lots and lots of questions of course still um some of them very very ice focused so we we're wondering at the moment exactly how how these uh, this deformation. So, what's special about Naxim is the is that it captures the statistics of the deformation of the ice, and the deformation is lead formation and ridge formation essentially. So, we started looking at um, is the are the leads that we produce are they realistic? Are they are they looking are they looking good? They seem to be. Um, we would also like to look at the ridging. So, can we? Can we know more about um, ridges on a large scale? This is very interesting for the for the shipping, obviously, because ships can't go through ridges. So if you have a heavily ridged ice area, you stay away. It's also important for the climate connection because the surface of ridged ice is much rougher than that of unriched ice. And so when the wind is blowing across the, the rough ridged ice, it, it pulls it more strongly. So there's a stronger coupling with the atmosphere. If the ice is flat, then it more or less, it feels the ice much less. And the ice feels the atmosphere much less as well. So we would very much like to look into the ridging processes and the general surface roughness properties of the ice. How did you become a scientist? How did you reach this stage of researching sea ice modeling <clears throat> well um how did i become a scientist it's more or less a people in offering me interesting work <laughs> i did a i did a bachelor's degree in physics um that was yeah i was interested in physics and it's a really fun and interesting topic and it was a general physics, so I did everything, quantum mechanics and, and general relativity and the whole whole lot. Once I finished, I sort of was looking around, what did I want to do? I was thinking about astrophysics, actually, but I didn't really want to be awake all night to look at stars, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, a professor at the University of Iceland, who's also working at the meteorolog meteorological office in Iceland, sort of, you know, nudged me and said, no, I have a colleague who's working on an ocean model. It could be interesting, right? And I said, yeah, sure, it could be interesting. <laughs> so then it was ocean models. And after that was for the PhD, it was a similar similar thing. You know, I have, know someone in Hamburg who's working on an ocean model in the, in the high Arctic. 
Yeah, could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could be interesting. <laughs> so I ended up there, and uh, and the PhD that was supposed to be ocean modeling with sea ice on top turned into a sea ice modeling with an ocean underneath. underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that was actually uh, the first the first time I got really interested in the sea ice mechanics because I was looking at landfast ice, which is ice that is stuck to the shore. So fast in this case is is uh, stuck like fast in your seat belts. It's not moving quickly. It's not moving at all, actually. And um, I found this to be a very interesting study in the in the dynamics and the mechanics of, of sea ice. And after a postdoc in Hamburg as well, I was offered a position here working with Maxim. And in a way, I couldn't believe my good luck because I knew that this was one of the most interesting modeling attempts in sea ice. So I said, yes, sure. It rains a lot, but it sounds like fun. (laughs) (laughs) And um, with regards to forecasting, when will Nexim be ready to be the operational backbone of forecasting for Norway? (laughs) The operational backbone. So Nexim is scheduled to be part of the Copernicus Marine Service for the Arctic. So there will be... uh, What we have now is... It's an ice-ocean coupled model called Topaz, which is uh, developed by the Nansen Center and run by the Met Office in, in Oslo. This produces an ocean and sea ice forecast, um, but with the previous generation ice model, what we, what we will do is to produce a short-term forecast, a seven-day forecast, using Nexim, so on, an ice-only forecast for the the Arctic. Um, I'm not quite sure of the timeline. It sounds like it is coming, though. It is it's coming. Planned. It's in the pipeline. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, this will become operational. It will become operational. That's quite clear. And in the within the year. Okay, Ina Olsen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We've been talking with Ina Olsen about his work on sea ice modeling here at the Bjorkna Center. From myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingil Pulskog, we hope you've enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You have known by listening to a podcast from Birkner Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center, NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute of Marine Research, IMR. The music is from Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0. Editor and responsible for the podcast is me, Engel Pilskog, Associated Professor at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.